you know, I say not all who wander are lost, and, and I completely relate to that because the, the seasonal lifestyle is a it's a wandering kind of a self-induced wandering that, that makes sense to the person that's doing it, but often doesn't make sense to their family or friends that don't understand how they can do it. And it's definitely not for everyone, but um, there's something about it that's pretty cool. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. I'm here with Drew O'Kane, one of my friends I met up in Ketchikan. Drew, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Joey. How are you, buddy? I'm wonderful. So, Drew, you are my fantasy football commissioner, and I wanted to tell you before we started that you did something that <laughs> really impressed me. You posted a picture, a transformation before and after picture of you rocking the abs, the bulging muscles. You've already, you've always. Been- <laughs> That's a strong dude, but uh, you also had that sort of dad bod going. And so the before picture was that. The after picture is you just ripped out of your mind. And the thing that impressed me was normally, and actually a lot recently, I've seen people post the first day picture. Them in the mirror, sweaty, like, oh, I'm going to do that for months. And then you never hear from them again. But yours, you didn't say a word, not a peep until the after photo and i thought that was really impressive i'm proud of you well thanks when you mentioned the uh fantasy commissioner i thought you're going to point out how terribly horrible i've done the last couple of years so I'm, I'm glad that you didn't point it out but i guess i just did so so much for that secret but uh yeah the the uh, post on facebook I, I appreciate that um you know the older you get the harder it is to stay in shape and maintain it especially if you fall out of shape so um I've been wanting to get back into better shape. I've always been real athletic and in shape. So um kind of slipped a little bit and uh, been wanting to get into shape. So yeah, I've definitely cracked down and made some life changes in the last nine, 10 months and proud of myself and uh, definitely got a lot of support from everybody. So that was, that was really cool. I appreciate that. I've had a lot of people ask me that listen to the podcast for, you know, more interviews with seasonals that have been seasonals for longer or who are the older crowd and now i'm not exactly giving them the older crowd with you because you're not that old but you have been <laughs> sort of seasonal lightly my friend <laughs> tip, 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 tip. so i mean you have been doing sort of seasonal like work for a long time so i was hoping that you could you know sort of start from where you think the beginning is and give us the whole thing because i'm i'm always fascinated hearing new parts of your story and it's it's really it's a great story and there's a lot a lot going on and i'm excited to share it with everybody that listens well uh yeah so i currently so i've got about about 10 years under my belt up in ketchikan alaska as of about two years ago received uh senior bear guide status so i do I do bear tours. Someone goes on our tour. I work with Steve Wind Aviation. Give Steve and Leslie Cam a shout out there. Awesome small operation with three, third generation pilots. They're from local Ketchikan and just a really class act. But basically, we uh, fly people out in seaplanes out to uh, remote locations in the rainforest and hike people down 
to the waterfalls where the bears are catching salmon and take people from all over the world down there for life-changing experience. And it's literally probably the coolest, greatest thing I've ever done. And I've done some pretty cool stuff, but um, it's it's spiritual. Um, like I said, get the opportunity to educate people about nature, and I love it. So it's been bringing me back for years. And um, I just committed to go back and bear guide again this summer. So I'm excited about that. You've told me before, when you first got on the ferry to catch a can, you, you'd flew there, you'd never been there. You just, you picked it. And when you got on the ferry, you threw your phone and your, and your watch overboard because you said you had an addiction to time. And that idea really fascinated me. And I wanted to hear about sort of where that began I think that'll tell us like where your story starts and then you finally get to that ferry and throw it away. And that's where kind of the spirit of Alaska takes over for you. So it's a, it's an interesting story. I would, uh, I'd have to backtrack in time a little bit to kind of bring everything full circle, but you know, everything happens for a reason. Every action sparks a reaction. And my quest to Alaska was really sparked as a little boy, though obviously I didn't know it at the time. But my dad was married six times. I had uh, brothers from several different women, which is a whole other story in itself. But my oldest brother had a different mom than my own, and his mom was uh, from California, and she married a big Disney producer. And that's just a little boy. He's quite a few years older than me. But uh she was on soap operas, and um, I remember seeing her from time to time as a little kid. My grandparents would point her out. It was really cool. It was a big deal. Everybody would you know, race to the TV to watch when she was on TV, and I actually never met her. But it, I, I remember it was just kind of a big deal, and it kind of sparked something inside of me. It, it was kind of at that time, as a little boy, that what I wanted most was not only to be in movies, but I wanted to be a movie star. That's what that's what everybody tells me, that I was, I was pretty young when I first started talking about Hollywood. As fate would have it, in order to get to Alaska 30, 35 years later, I was going to have to take a detour route through the hot desert of Arizona, where I would make millions, and then through Hollywood, where I would lose it all. And that route included a lot of inner self battles, uh, some massive gains, with some really good blessings and then some total losses. Um, struggled with addiction, struggled with suicide, and uh, of course some heartbreak along the way. But I always seem to take the long way to my destination. That's just kind of been my nature, whether it be good or bad. But the truth is, I would one be one day be saved by Alaska. So as I said, it started started from a little boy. I wanted I wanted to get into movies. So when I got into high school. I uh, started looking into some modeling and stuff. I was, I was a star athlete. I had several scholarship offers and um, ended up getting a full-ride scholarship for football and track. And then when I graduated, I actually decided to walk away from that scholarship and started looking into some modeling and this and that and the other. And I actually did pretty well just in Colorado. Well, there's not a huge market in Colorado for modeling, at least not for serious modeling, but... Um, like I said, I, was, I had some talent in it, and my agents in Colorado um, advised me that I should go to Los Angeles. You know, that's not what agents in Colorado are telling all of their people, because most of the people there are just paying for headshots, but they did see some, some potential and, and told me that I should go to L.A. Yeah, and so I told my family that uh, this new bright idea wasn't going to pursue the scholarships and that type of thing, and I was instead going to go try to be a model and then an actor in Hollywood and my family disowned me. I, I came home one day and found all my belongings, which wasn't a lot, but in black trash bags on the front porch 
with a note basically saying that when I came back down to earth and reality and gave up on this Hollywood dream, then uh, I could come back home or the family would accept me at that time. So kind of got disowned over the idea, but I went for it anyway. So when I decided to head off to California, I had a couple suitcases and I believe I had about 50 bucks in my pocket. It was not real well thought out, obviously. I'm kind of known for kind of jumping on things. Sometimes that works, sometimes that, that just doesn't work. But this was an example of a time that it didn't work. I, didn't, I never did get to LA on my initial journey. I, got, I stopped in Phoenix. Luckily, I knew some people there that let me stay with them. And I uh, actually got an interesting job. First job I ever got there was as a bodyguard for an escort service. <laughs> which that, that ended up being the first movie script that I ever wrote. It's called uh, On My Way to L.A., and that's a story about all of my experiences as a bodyguard for this kind of underground escort service. And that's a story within itself. So <laughs> that was a wild ride. Definitely like put my life on the line on a regular basis doing, doing that job. But ultimately, I had to quit it because I um, almost got killed one night along with one of the girls that I was bodyguarding. So uh, like I say, that's another story. I'll try not to get sidetracked, but that that's the... Uh, that experience was was what sparked my first script writing experience and uh while i was in arizona i got i didn't stay with the bodyguard job long i was making several hundred dollars a night but uh, again put my life on the line so i got out of that pretty quick kind of on a whim got started into some construction work which i didn't see coming but someone asked me if i knew how to do something i said that i did truth was that i didn't know how to do the job that they asked me so I ran and got a book and educated myself real quick on it and did the job. They loved it, referred me to somebody else, did the job for them. They loved it. And that kind of snowballed into me starting my own little business. At the time, it was just me and it took me about a year before I could hire some help. I'll never forget the first first guy I hired was a Mexican immigrant named Elias. And uh, for me, that was a huge step forward because I finally had someone else to help wheelbarrow rock or carry two by fours or whatever it was that I was doing. I, I just kind of started doing all kinds of random work. That then snowballed. I started hiring more and more people and got licensed and bonded and insured. And my number one thing, I had some real good mentors in my life at the time. And uh, they kind of drilled it into my head that you do a job right and you stand behind it and you're going to have some real good job security. And that's exactly what I did and made sure that everything I did was the, was done the very best that it could be. And I stood behind it. If people called, I answered the phone. If there was a problem, I went and addressed it. And I quickly built a very good reputation in the Phoenix area, in the, in the Valley for quality and reliability. And I'm pretty anal. Um, so I was like, I can't, sign a job and then not be there. So I was always on top of everything and, and people like that. So I developed a business called Titan and we did design construction and in civil engineering for, we ended up focusing on, on outdoor landscapes. We did higher end scale stuff for homeowners that were, came from all over the country and bought these big, beautiful houses on the golf courses down in Phoenix there. So we would do waterfalls and outdoor pizza ovens and entertainment centers and putting greens and you know ten thousand to fifty thousand dollar landscapes and it was it was really really cool i ended up with about 18 full-time employees out of office a couple of full-time employees in office had a couple of designers titan just just rolled and never looked back we won some national awards some uh, state home show competitions when uh, I was doing speeches at the graduating classes for the botanical gardens, it just was a really, really cool 
experience and Titan was, we were on the covers of newspapers and stuff and were responsible for shaping the look of the West Valley there in Phoenix. And I mean, we were doing hundreds and hundreds of houses. It was really neat. And at the end of the day, Titan was making lots and lots of money. We, we think we averaged about 3 million in sales three years in a row. And that was at a peak where, you know, I did, I kind of forgot all about the movie dream. Everything was just rolling and really couldn't have been any better as far as business goes with Titan. And that all came from you saying you knew how to do something and then figuring it out and then doing it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. I've always been kind of a um kind of naturally curious and uh, you know when I was young, I didn't when video games were coming out and everything. I don't want to age myself too much, but there were video games and stuff like that, but I just wasn't really interested. I was always outside building a go-kart or or a treehouse or you know adventuring and figuring things out on the outside of the world, not not inside stuck behind the TV. So of course I was a little bit of a handful. My parents weren't around a lot. So I had a lot of freedom and that freedom helped me in a lot of ways to discover some things. And it was also kind of destructive at times. I I had a real interest with um, building things and then lighting them on fire, for example. (laughs) Didn't have anyone around to tell me not to play with the chemicals in the garage. So I figured out which ones were flammable, which ones weren't. And um, I had some fun. I remember I had a, a Millennium Falcon from the Star Wars toy was a fairly large toy about the size of an average TV screen. I filled that with gasoline and all my Star Wars figurines and lit that up. And that was quite the little show, of course, ruined everything and got in a lot of trouble. But um, they were I made everything very realistic. I had an eye for detail, even at a young age. I also kind of a funny little side story. The original G.I. Joe figurines were about the size of a Barbie and they had actual hair on their head and and beards that were kind of like made of little fuzz whatever and my dad was three quarters bald as as a child so i I remember i shaved my brother's gi joe to look like my dad and and obviously ruined it and my brother still talks about how that gi joe would be worth money today had i not shaved its head to look (laughs) like my dad was pretty pretty funny i was always out i was more um very adventurous and curious little kid and like i said i didn't have a lot of supervision so that gave me the freedom to kind of explore and see a lot of things that other kids probably weren't doing because they had parental supervision. So it's the way that you tell the Titan story. It sounds like it's building up to something, either, either the end or moving on to the next phase. What, what happened there? So when the uh, economy started to change in 2006, myself and Titan, we didn't, I didn't feel any pinch. I wasn't experiencing any slow in sales or anything on that matter but um i was starting to notice a lot of my competition i was always very aware of other companies that did the same type of work that i did i paid attention to when they were in neighborhoods that i was working in you know any any smart business person wants to keep on top of what the competition's doing so you can stay ahead of the game if possible but i did start to notice that uh, some other companies big successful companies starting to sell off trucks and starting to lay off some laborers and that type of thing. And so I started to pay attention and then I started to kind of do the math and then it you know became kind of a national awareness that the economy was starting to suffer. And so I uh, consulted with some mentors, uh, one of which was my mother, the same one, ironically, that disowned me and put all my belongings on the front porch when years earlier I wanted to go to Hollywood to be a model. So fast forward now, all of these years later, my mom was uh, my full-time in-office accountant for Titan. She had her own office. So it's, it's kind of funny. She was then working for me and her and I had a little sit down heart to heart. And I told her that I was, um, even though Titan wasn't suffering, I was concerned that that we would, that whatever this dark cloud that was 
settling over the entire country slowly, um, and it did turn into quite quite a downfall for all of the United States. The economy really took a huge tank in 2008. So ironically, my mom was the one that said, well, maybe we should close Titan down and you should go back to your film making dreams. And uh, I'll never forget when she told me that I was in, obviously in shock. It sparked an idea instantly. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. That's what I want to do. And I basically made that decision overnight that I was going to shut Titan down and go back to the movie making idea. Um, again, as I said, I had written that script from the escort bodyguard experience. So I kind of had something in my back pocket that I had never done anything with and kind of forgotten about. My mentor explained to me the little thing called golden handcuffs. And that's when somebody gets caught up. A lot of people, I would say probably a majority of people could relate, get caught up in a career or something that was never anything they loved or had a passion for per se, but they were making good money. And, they, and over time, you get you're secure with that paycheck and pretty soon that security becomes like a pair of handcuffs and, and you're afraid to walk away from it and take a chance. And so then time flies and pretty soon things slip through your fingers. So I, I really related to that golden handcuff theory and, and realized that Titan was, a, was really just a pair of golden handcuffs. I was making fists and fists of money. I built a beautiful 3,000 square foot house on a, on a couple of acres. I enclosed the whole property with a six foot solid block wall, made it basically a compound. It was going to be really, really cool. I had a fleet of cars. I had four boats, every toy you could imagine. I mean, I, I, I buy a new motorcycle and put it in the garage and never start it. In fact, one time I bought a brand new quad on a whim and I, I sold that years later. I never started it. The original gas was still in it. Um, I just said, I just had so much money and didn't know what to do with it. So, so it made a lot of sense to, with all of that money in my pocket to pursue the film idea again. But the twist now, all of these years later was now I could maybe make a movie on my own and finance it myself and be in control as opposed to having to go to LA and hopefully be discovered and, uh, make something happen. So I decided to, um, finish out all of the scheduled booked jobs that I had already received down payments on, which was about three months worth of work and, and gave all of my people notice that I was going to close the doors on, on this big, big machine. Um, and at the time, really everyone other than my mom who agreed with me, everyone had just couldn't fathom as to why I would shut Titan down. But again, I, I thought that I was kind of predicting the future and decided that it was time to do something different. And so we closed the doors and I decided to finance my own independent film, which was kind of crazy um, considering I, I had never done any film work and um, wasn't educated in film. I didn't take any courses on film per se. I, I had taken a couple writing and, and uh, one film course at the University of Colorado and Boulder, but uh, nothing, nothing, nothing substantial. And um, so it's kind of crazy for somebody with no experience to go try to make an actual feature length, decent budgeted film with, with no experience. Um, I'm probably not the first person to try it, but uh, it's, it probably wasn't the smartest idea ever, but it's right up the alley with what Drew does. And again, I've, I've always been one to take chances on myself, worked for myself since I was 19, basically. And some things have worked really well, some haven't. Titan was an example of something that worked very, very well. The movie venture, big example of something that went terribly wrong and basically turned my life upside down. Yeah. And I can understand going from Titan, which you know worked so well and you didn't have any information there. 
and then jumping straight into this, which you seemingly had a little bit more and being full of confidence and ready to do it. Did you, did you go to LA or did you just go straight into making that film in Colorado? Well, what I did, so I was still in Phoenix during the last three months of the work that I decided to close out with Titan. I actually met one of my very best friends that worked for me and, and knew Titan um, like the back of her hand. Um, so she had been there basically from the beginning. I kind of let her take everything over. And I basically went into full full movie-making mode. I took a month off and rented a little teeny tiny cabin up in a small town outside of Durango, Colorado called Silverton. This is an old gold mining town, tiny little town, awesome place, definitely. Anybody's up for adventure, you got to check out Silverton. Someday put that on your bucket list. 14,000 foot peaks, um, absolutely God's country. And the mountainsides are just riddled with old mine shafts. They used to mine everything from lead, gold, silver. There's all these old ruins of mine shafts and everything up there. It's really a unique place. So I rented a little cabin up there for a month, went up there with my dog and I, and I just kind of locked myself into this cabin. And I just started writing a, writing a script. At the time, I wasn't sure what I was going to write, which again is probably not the way most people go about <laughs> doing this but uh at the same time i was like oh well i'll come up with something I'm, I'm i've always been really creative so i'm sitting in this little cabin and i um and i'm going out and i'm kind of looking around this awesome town in the mountains and everything i have a big four-wheel drive trucks so i was able to go around and check things out i have been going up there for years and there's some people up there so i'm kind of familiar with it but so while i'm up there i'm sparked sparked an idea that i ended up writing a script about uh, kind of a thriller, suspense thriller about a guy that inherits a property up in Silverton. And uh, he's kind of a city slicker. So he comes to check out this property and thinks he wants to sell it. Well, unbeknownst to him, the property has a, a very highly productive gold mine on it. And there's a secret conspiracy of a small group of people that are highly profitable endeavor on this mine shaft. So they don't want him to sell it. Of course, they don't can't tell him why, but um, they're willing to kill to keep this keep this little secret that they have it's making them rich so that's kind of the story i came up with and decided to film it there in silverton where where i had written it so i came back to phoenix after writing the script and i had met a really really talented um emmy award-winning film guy that uh, named george gifford and he worked for a local news station i had actually met him during an interview with titan as i said we got a lot of recognition for some really innovative stuff. I was, I was kind of pioneering some really cool new ways to do waterfalls and stuff that hadn't been done. And so I got some TV recognition with that as well. So I had his card and I actually contacted him and asked him, um, Hey, would you ever have any interest in doing a feature film? And of course he was like, wow, yes, I, I would. And I was like, okay, well, I've got several hundred thousand dollars just sitting around collecting dust. And I feel like I want to make a movie, which is, which is hilarious, but that's almost how the conversation went. <laughs> and uh i said do you think we could do this and uh, and he said yes so there i had a guy that had worked on local tv and myself and a script he started kind of knocking on doors with people he knew and i i kind of started doing reaching out to some people and um before you knew it we we were at a stage where we had, were having production meetings and i had put together a crew several people out of la um several people out of phoenix there's actually a, a decent film industry in phoenix because it's it's pretty close to los angeles a lot of the demographic is, is real similar in appearance wise so um there's a there's a decent industry in phoenix and um we, we put together a, a decent sized team i mean we had all of the 
parts and people that you need to make a, a real feature film. Did uh, a handful, probably probably half a dozen, six six to eight casting calls. A couple of those were in Hollywood. Um, we we travel with our producers and stuff. And of course, I had to hire and approve everybody. But ended up with a real talented guy named Chris Stapleton. If you Google him, he's been in a lot of different movies. But uh, he was our lead actor. Put together this crew, and we went to uh, went up to Silverton to make this movie. And again, I obviously was financing everything. I remember my initial budget it was fifty thousand dollars, and uh, we thought we could make it with fifty with fifty k. That was exciting. I remember the very first scouting trip we took to Silverton with a couple of producers and my art director. We weren't even there for the night, and and that budget went up twenty five thousand dollars. <laughs> I remember sitting in my hotel room and going and knocking on their their room and and adding twenty five thousand dollars to the budget that first night just after talking about things we're going to need and everything. So, um, but that is a really telling sign as to what was going to happen as we proceeded as far as the budget was concerned because 50,000 turned into close to 300,000 once all was said and done and uh and and things got got pretty nasty as as the process turned it started out real fun and exciting and we we're all going to be famous and um slowly things kind of kind of went south for sure so during the process of all of the pre-production and getting putting the team together getting everything ready to take all of this equipment and all of these people up to Silverton to actually film the movie, there was kind of a change that took place inside of me that I wasn't completely aware of at the time, but uh, but it definitely things started to change. Before we even got up there and made the movie, you know, again, I had all this money in my pocket from Titan and, and, so, and during all these pre-production meetings and I'm meeting all these people and I'm hiring all these people and we're going to go make a movie, it became obvious not only to me, but to all of these people that I heard that I was in complete control of everything. And that all came down to the money because I was financing it. But I was the writer and the director of the film and I was paying for everything. So and we'd have all of these meetings and pulled out all of the stops. The meetings were completely catered. We always did VIP and um, I just was spending money that I didn't need to spend, but I was falling into this big almost like this Hollywood dream trap of being famous. And, um, and I was nobody at the time, but, but I was starting to live that Hollywood lifestyle just because I had the money in my pocket to do it. Ridiculous stuff. Um, I would travel to Vegas with bodyguards and get private planes and, and we would fake phone calls could be publicists for me and get ourselves into the nicest clubs. And we were drinking Cristal with stars. It was, it kind of snowballed that the rule with my friends that if, if we were, if we were hanging out and partying with, with a famous person, didn't care who it was, there was no pictures and no asking for autographs because I really thought I was going to be one of them and I wanted to act like one of them. And I didn't want to be the one taking pictures or asking for autographs. I didn't need that because I was going to be one of them. So it was definitely rolling kind of that, movie star lifestyle not that not that they're all doing that but to me in my mind that's what that was going to be and i and i wanted it really bad it changed me obviously and with that came into the scene cocaine it's no secret that uh hollywood has a underlying drug <laughs> cloud i guess you could say um Again, not everybody's doing it, but uh, to anybody that thought cocaine in the casting couch went out in the 80s, that's actually just not true. And uh, I remember uh, one day I had a, a guy that I hired to be an assistant to me as the director came to 
came to my house and uh, I answered the door and he had one hand behind his back and he had a really weird look on his face and my stomach sank. I didn't know what he had behind his back, but I pulled him inside and said, what do you have? And he pulled around and he had a dinner plate piled mountain high with cocaine. He had no idea even how much that would be, but he did, it wasn't covered. There was no cellophane on it, nothing. I don't know how he even got to my house with it. It was the craziest thing, but at the time it freaked me out. I put it on top of my kitchen cabinet, sat up there for two weeks. I didn't even know what to do with it, but uh, I, I, yeah, it's the craziest thing. And that's a true story. I, I don't know how he, I don't even, I mean, I've tried to imagine a thousand times in my life looking back, you know, I'll never forget that. And it's like, how did he get it there? How did he drive with that? Like, I, I don't know the, the logistics to it, but um I do know that we did figure out what to do with it, and um, that just added to the speed of the train that we were racing down the tracks on. That definitely affects you mentally, and uh, it just it just pumped me up higher, put put me even higher up. I, my view became wider and broader, and I just saw more that I could conquer, so to speak. So the cocaine kind of started becoming a regular part of the whole production of the movie, and. So then when we got up to make the movie, everything seemed to go fairly well. I had all a lot of good people. Um, the production value, the locations that we had were just over the top. I mean, we're, we're shooting in old ghost towns that are 150 years old at 14,000 feet elevation on these incredible mountain peaks. Like you, you, you can't make that stuff. So I leased out an old mine shaft called the old 100 and, the, and that they do tours on that where they, drive you in on old ore cars about a mile deep into the mountain. Well, I leased that out. So we we're filming inside of old mine shafts and just doing some really, really awesome stuff. As I say, that, that's all called production value. When they have to make this in a Hollywood studio or they do CGI work where they're creating these incredible scenes, we had the actual scenes. Like it was, it was the real physical geographical deal. It was, it was incredible. And uh, it was an awesome experience. <clears throat> Unfortunately, going back to the party side of it for me, we would spend 10, 12 hours filming during a day. And then and then we would go back to the production offices and that type of thing. Well, I had a little bit of a click. I had my personal assistants and had bonded with a few people in the crew. And as soon as we would wrap for the day, I would go party. I would go rent a bar out and have open tabs for anybody and everybody that wanted to come till two in the morning when we'd close the place down. And basically created as wild a party as we could every single day after we would rap. And that was awesome fun. But that was the beginning of my demise. And I didn't even know it with making the film because there's a little thing called dailies. And when you make a film, whatever you film today, at the end of today, if you're smart, you're going to go watch everything that you filmed today. And again, those are called dailies. And that's how you find out if you got what you needed if the sound was right, if the lines were right, if the lighting was right, and if something wasn't right and you catch it right then and there, well, you have the opportunity to go back and redo whatever you need to redo. Looking back, I can tell you, um, I'm sitting here shaking my head as I say it, I didn't watch any dailies, the entire production. I didn't watch any dailies. I didn't listen to any sound. Again, I didn't know a lot about filmmaking, but I had a vision, so... Everything we were doing was very good, but there were little, there were technical mistakes that I was making and I didn't know. There was nobody to tell me, hey, you really need to watch your dailies. This was something I learned far after the fact. And that really bit me in the ass because when we got back 
down to Phoenix and everyone went back to LA and I really sat down with, with George to start doing the editing because I wanted to be right in the middle of the editing as well. We found out that we we're missing exorbitant amounts of our sound on location, sound, ambient sound, background, dialogue, huge amounts of it were just not there. Turned out that probably the straightest arrow, or at least the person we thought was the straightest arrow in the production crew was was the sound guy. I won't, won't say his name now because I've tried for years to forget it. Turns out he was on heroin. Missed, just, just didn't do it. Just, just didn't get huge amounts of sound. There was almost no scene that wasn't affected in some way, shape, or form. So all of the quality that we had in every other department didn't mean squat because we didn't have sound to go with it. So right then and there, I was pretty much screwed. Well, I had two options. That was take everybody back to Silverton, 14,000 feet, way up in the middle of nowhere in the mountains in Colorado, or start trying to find somebody that could create what we needed in studio. And unfortunately, that's that was the only thing that I could do. Taking everybody back, all of the crew, all of the equipment, getting all of the locations. Winter winter had fallen on Silverton, and they get, I mean, they get dozens of feet of snow up there. So it's it's a, it gets snowed in. So we were just kind of screwed and had to go the in studio route. And that's when the use of the cocaine really became a big part of the picture because I was suddenly thrown into super depression and super panic mode. I had a huge problem. Everything that I had just done, all of this money that I had just spent suddenly meant nothing and everything came to a screeching stop. To give you an idea of money that was spent on the movie, as I said, that initial budget for 50000 went up to 75000 in a day. We ended up having to stay just a few extra days uh, in Silverton filming the movie. Those few extra days cost me $55,000 on top of Everything else that was being spent on everything. One of my producers, for example, couldn't stay for the extra few days, so I had to fly in another producer on a private jet from Los Angeles on a moment's notice. That flight alone was almost $2,000. So it just like the money was just flying through my fingers and out of my bank account big time faster than I could even keep track of it. I became obsessed with, with trying to fix this problem. I, I hired a, another sound guy that cost close to $80,000 to try to create this. I never even met this individual. He was in Los Angeles. It was all, it was all done uh, via email and telephone. And long story short, by the time I fired him, I was out another 80000 and had to start over with a new sound guy. The second sound guy was about 40000 The third sound guy was about 20000 all of the sound that all three of those guys made went into the trash and the film went on to the shelf. This was over several months course of time. And over that entire time, I was not working. I was burning through all of my savings and bank accounts. I was not sleeping. I was so desperate to try to figure out the problem that I was watching the movie over and over and over and making notes and sound notes night after night after night, fueled by cocaine, locked in my office. Totally self-destructing, just started to hate myself, constantly beating myself up for, uh, one, for, I mean, things for shutting down Titan to, to, to do this, you know, was so pissed off because I, you know, I decided to chase my dream. My dream was always to, to do the movie thing. And, and so when you make such a valiant effort, it's just not supposed to crash and burn like that. But, um, so it really started to hold myself completely responsible. It goes back to not watching those dailies because it could have, could have saved it all. 
I just couldn't get anyone to fix it. And I, I really felt betrayed by everybody. Everyone that had gotten paid on the film, uh, you know, wasn't there now in the trenches with me trying to figure out how to fix it. Of course, everybody wanted to see the movie released and, and get purchased and that type of thing, going to distribution, DVD and that type of thing at the time. But uh, but nobody was there with me, you know, night after night after night trying to figure it out. And it, and it became an extremely dark time. My house ended up getting the beautiful big house that I built got foreclosed on. I was slowly um, selling things. Um, all of the toys, all of the cars, all of the vehicles, one by one, slowly over time. I got rid of it, one, to fuel the, so that I could just live, and two, to keep the cocaine going so that I could stay awake and keep trying and trying and trying to figure it out. And every day that went by, I went deeper and deeper into a dark rabbit hole, and it got tighter and tighter. Things things got really, really bleak, especially when I decided to shelf the movie, because at that point, it was basically abort, and and there was no going back. And I put it on the shelf after the film showed in Comic-Con and um, got bad reviews for the sound, and that just crushed me. So I put it on the shelf and, and withdrew it from the film festival circuit that we're trying to pursue, and, and, and I never looked back. Everyone was disappointed, but for me, it was... I self-destructed completely, and I basically was in a deep suicide mode because I had nothing left and didn't didn't know where I was going to go. And so from there, <clears throat> you shelf the movie, you look around, you think everyone's against you or has abandoned you. What's what's the path from that dark place up to Ketchikan? Well, so as I said, I'm I'm sitting here fighting my demons daily, kind of kind of all by myself. Kind of disappeared from the scene. We started to had some good friends that got me into some national short film competitions, and and that was kind of good therapy me therapy for me. That's actually where I ended up learning all about filmmaking. Um, won a bunch of national recognition for writing and directing and acting and sold out stadium theaters in Scottsdale and had a, had a really good ride with that. But, um, but that was short lived and, and did nothing. It wasn't making any money or anything, but kind of gave me a little hope. But as I said, that was kind of short lived. So I, um, ended up having a very good friend that was very concerned about me, who was really the only one person I opened up with and told the truth about my cocaine and the usage and the demons that I was fighting. And when I say fighting demons, I mean, such a lack of sleep and tearing myself down both with the chemicals and lack of nutrition and sleep and that type of thing. But I, I mean, I was literally watching demons crawl across the floor, the floor of my room and that type of thing. It was like the darkest place I've ever been in my life. I was really at the end of my rope and, and uh, luckily opened up and told, told one friend the truth. And that friend, uh, God bless her, offered to buy me a plane ticket anywhere I wanted to go. Who told me I needed to get out of Phoenix. And um, had lots of friends and family that I didn't, didn't tell the whole story to, but a lot of a lot of people that were open to you know try to help me get back on track. They had obviously seen me lose everything slowly over time after being on top of the mountain with Titan. And um, but I knew that I, I couldn't go anywhere that I knew somebody. I knew I had to get further away because if I knew somebody, I could probably ultimately find my way around and find my way back to getting my hands on some cocaine. And luckily, I was smart enough. And strong enough. Um, I don't know where that strength came from, but I but I finally realized, yeah, I got to get out of here because otherwise I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna overdose or or kill myself. So I had uh, 
I had a brother that was an engineer in Anchorage, Alaska. And uh, he told me, well, come up here. I'll get you a job on the pipeline, doing security or something. You make great money and, and you'll get away from it. And um, so I went to Anchorage. I was only in Anchorage for a couple of days. And I realized, yeah, this isn't going to work. I really felt that I probably was going to commit suicide and, and didn't want to do it there. So the first and only time I ever looked at Craigslist in my life, and I don't know why why I did, but um, maybe it was an act of God, something inside of me. But I looked on Craigslist and found this five-star lodge in Naha Bay, just outside of Ketchikan, Alaska. And this five-star lodge was about to open for its inaugural season. And they needed someone that knew quite a bit of stuff about construction to do all the final specialty details to get this place off the ground. So I inquired about it and the owner, uh, after hearing all of my credentials and basically my resume with Titan, you know, he told me right out of the gate, he said, Hey, you're way too qualified. I'm only going to pay somebody to come up here and be an extra to hand 10 bucks an hour. I just don't know. You're going to come here and you're not going to be happy with the money and I can't afford to bring you here and have you leave. And I didn't care about the money. I just, something told me I just needed to get further away an Anchorage where, like I said, I even knew my brother. So I uh, told him I would take the job for 10 bucks an hour. This was when I was making several hundred thousand dollars a year. <laughs> but it was it was the first step, first humbling step that I that I took towards self-repair. I didn't know it at the time. but So uh, two days after going to Anchorage, I told my brother that I was leaving. He, of course, didn't know what the hell I was talking about and didn't get it. But uh, sure enough, I got on a plane and went to Ketchikan. And um, to anyone that doesn't know, um, Ketchikan is... Uh, the town on Gugeto Island in southeast Alaska, and on an island just across the channel is Gravina Island, and that's where the airport to Ketchikan is. So I landed uh, on Gravina Island there, and when I got on the ferry, as you referred to when we first started talking, I uh, took my watch off and threw it in the ocean, and I threw my phone into the ocean. I was just trying to completely disconnect. Uh, I had become obsessed with time. I mean, literally looked at my watch. I could tell you how long it took to do many things that people shouldn't know how long it takes to do something. So I uh, tried to detach from those type of things by throwing those into the drink and uh, came over. They picked me up at the airport in a skiff and we went on about a 45 minute ride out to Naha Bay. So I actually never got to see Ketchikan, the, the town, for quite some time. I didn't know it, but when I went out to Naha Bay to this lodge, I was going to be out there in the middle of nowhere, Alaska, for about two months before I would see another human being. But uh, that's where some incredible things started to happen in my life that kind of gave me hope again. I'll never forget, um, it was one of the first few days that I was out there. Uh, you know, I would get up in the morning, and, and I mean, this is in the middle of nowhere, but it's right on the beach to the ocean. Just absolutely gorgeous wildlife everywhere. And there was a waterfall. So in the morning, as I kind of got into the routine, first thing I'm going out and kind of hiking up this waterfall just a little bit, listening to the birds and just smelling the fresh air and kind of trying to find myself. And one morning I was hiking and I, and I looked up and there was this doe, a deer standing. I don't even know if it was 10 feet away. It seems like it was closer, but it, but it just stood there. And uh, I made eye contact with this deer I'll never forget it. It was a spiritual moment, but uh, the deer, you know, should have should have run, obviously. 
uh, or maybe I should have, but both of us just kind of froze and, and stood there and locked eyes with each other. And the, and the deer kept wagging its tail, but otherwise it was completely motionless. I just stayed perfectly still. And we just had this connection. And, and that was the first time I, I actually kind of felt something within myself again, um, because I was just so dead and, and dormant and had become just so disconnected with everything. I connected with that deer and I don't really know how to explain it, but it was, it was spiritual. And, and right there that morning in that rainforest, I, I remember consciously thinking, this is why I want to live. And, and right then and there, I, I decided I want to live. I, I, I got to get through this. I got to figure it out and work it out. And, um, obviously by taking off to Alaska, I, I quit the cocaine cold Turkey by, by force, self-inflicted force, obviously by going to a remote location where it was, but it was great. So I was detoxing. I was reconnecting not only with myself, but with other things and, and had a new spark of an interest in, in life again. And that was also obviously um, where I began a love for Alaska, which, which is easy to do. But for me, it was very deep and very spiritual and, and important. My, my family homesteaded a huge ranch in the mountains in Colorado. So uh, I grew up with a, with a blessed opportunity to adventure in the mountains and, and ride horses and, and all of this type of thing. So I've always had a real good connection with the outdoors and nature and that type of thing. But this was, this was different. This was a life changing, life saving experience. And, and um, as I said in the beginning, that ultimately I realized that, that I was saved by Alaska. And, and it was uh, it was a magical time and experience, obviously that I'll never forget. But that was out in Naha, where where again I was in the middle of nowhere, and I was out there for a long time before I finally got to go into town. And the first time I went into this little town of Ketchikan was to go to the hardware store. The, the owner finally let me go into town while I was waiting for some materials to to get prepared at the little hardware store. I, I went down the street to this little mom and pop diner. Uh, unfortunately, it's not open anymore. It was the greatest little hole in the wall place, but it was called Dave's Red Anchor. And, and they had uh, the best sausage gravy ever as well. Did you get a chance to go to Dave's before they closed? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I had Dave's oh, for the awesome. first two years I was in town. Oh yeah. It was, it was, it was great. Uh, Dave and Lori Kitzmiller literally little mom and pop operation. Um, just a handful of tables. Um, all of them wobbled. None of the chairs matched. Uh, had the old plastic covers like your grandparents had back in the day. And I think in the little kitchen, he had like two four burner stoves and a refrigerator and a sink. I don't even know how he did it, but he made great food. And uh, it was just a place where you, where you felt comfortable. It was kind of like being at home. But uh, the first time I went in there, kind of sat in the back corner, ordered my breakfast, and I was uh, just kind of, you know, watching from a distance. And it seemed like every person that walked in and out of the door said hello to the people sitting. Everybody knew everybody. And uh, it, it was really cool to witness that. And someone needed some firewood, I remember, and someone offered to help them. And another person said, oh, I've, I've got some you can have too. And it was just cool, like, to see this camaraderie and this, this family-type atmosphere in this little small town. And I really connected with that. and I really felt like it was a good place for me to rebuild myself. And and sitting there in Dave's Red Anchor was where I decided that Ketchikan was, was going to be my home for a while. And everything, just just a lot of good things kind of started happening in, in very small baby steps, very small baby steps. 
but uh, over the course of the next four years, I, I would live in Ketchikan, kind of was started doing some construction stuff for myself again. I remember I made a little flyer that I that I hung up on the uh, bulletin board in the grocery stores and in a couple of bars explaining some of the work and put up some pictures of work that I had done. And before you knew it, I, I was pretty busy and hired hired a buddy of mine to help me out up there because I was getting a lot of work, all, all stuff that was self-trained from, from my days with Titan. So Titan actually has provided for me for years after shutting it down one way or another because the skills that I had from there are things that I'll never lose. So um, Titan shut down a long time ago, but it still provides for me today in reality. But um, met some great people, um, developed some relationships that are with people that I now consider family, uh, started a couple of small businesses, started a Bigfoot, got a Bigfoot up there that a buddy of mine from Worked on the Lord of the Rings special effects made for me. It's eight and a half foot tall. It's, it's a pretty cool deal. Um, my buddy Terry Chandler and I started up a pop kettle corn, which is now I think in its ninth or tenth year down at Birth One. Um, but that was the very first business adventure I, I decided to try to get off the ground after after Titan. It's a modest little business, but it's really cool and everybody loves it. We do something that's a little bit different. So Catch Can really uh, became like a driving force for me again. Um, it, uh, it, it was home and the birthplace of, of some new businesses for me, which was key in helping me to reestablish the self-confidence that I had completely lost during all of that self-destruction mode with the guilt um, over basically losing everything and turning my life upside down. Um, but I was clean. I was doing good things. I was a part of the community. I sat on the board at the Moose Lodge. I ran for city council. Terry and I with the Pops did a lot of stuff with the schools. It just it, it was a really good, really good time in my life and, and was very positive. I, uh, but as all good things uh, must come to an end, um, I am not a 100% small town kind of guy. So a lot of the things that I fell in love with Catch can, for example, everybody knows everybody, everybody knows what everybody's doing. That that became something that I didn't like so much because everybody knows everybody, everybody knows everybody's business. And uh, there's some good and some bad that come with that. So, But that's okay because uh, I was destined to do other things. And so I left uh, Catch Can, went and started some other things in some other places. But that calling brought me right back. I've now been going back doing different things. I got into the bear guiding with Sea Wind uh, several years ago. So coming full circle with the seasonal work, I am definitely a seasonal person that, that gets called back to Alaska each year by that inner calling. You know, for everybody, it's different. But the, as anyone, especially listening to your podcast, knows the, the seasonal lifestyle, these are people that travel to do something that they love. A lot of people travel from country to country or place to place year round doing the different seasonal jobs. I've kind of feel like I've bounced around a lot of my life. So, so it's kind of in my blood, that kind of nomadic lifestyle that, you know, I say not all who wander are lost. And, and I completely relate to that because the, the seasonal lifestyle is a, it's a wandering kind of a self-induced wandering that, that makes sense to the person that's doing it but often doesn't make sense to their family or friends that don't understand how they can do it and it's definitely not for everyone but um there's something about it that's pretty cool i out of all of the things that i've done 
the bear guiding with sea wind uh, again is one of the most special things that I've ever been a part of. And uh, again, I just committed for another season. I, I gotta go do it again. Although I do know that the day for me is coming where I'm, where I won't be able to do it anymore because I've got to not get any younger and I need to focus on, on some other things that are important to me, like a family, which I don't have yet, but I definitely want. So anybody knows when you're doing that seasonal lifestyle that can definitely be trying on relationships unless you happen to be one of the very lucky few that that has a seasonal partner that, that travels with you but it's kind of hard to get somebody to take you serious when you're bouncing around all the time my days my days are numbered but i gotta go back at least this summer well tell me a little bit about the bear guiding job uh, something that draws you back something that is so special to you give me give me kind of a walkthrough of what you do and what's special about it. It's, it's all special. It's the coolest thing. So um, to anyone that doesn't know, obviously catch can is a cruise ship destination and that's its big draw. At least, uh, at least in today it used to be logging, but now it's uh, all tourism basically along with some fishing, obviously. But um, so to cruise ship passengers, if they were to choose an excursion and there's lots of cool excursions that catch can offers. Uh, we, if you choose our excursion, you, we take you uh, out in a seaplane. We take off on the water, go, go for an awesome flight over the ocean. We see whales all the time. And I've seen whales or uh, whales in the ocean, obviously, but I've seen wolves on the beach and we see bears from the air and deer and all kinds of cool stuff um, on our flight out there. But we land on the water again. And then I take you on a hike down through the rainforest, which is just full of big, beautiful red and yellow cedars, you know, thousand year old trees. It's absolutely gorgeous. You can see all of the effects from the glaciers over the past 10,000 years. It's uh, it's an epic experience just going on the hike alone. But ultimately our destination is to get down to a large waterfall. And uh, at this waterfall, the salmon kind of get backed up but the waterfall is basically too high for them to pass. So they get pulled up. And the bears over time have figured out that this is an easy fishing spot, kind of like shooting fish in a barrel for them. And uh, so obviously it's a great spot to, to go look for bears because the odds are very good that we're going to see them. Some of the things I absolutely love about the job, obviously, are getting my opportunity to educate people. We get people from all over the world. I had a cool experience a couple of years ago. had some a family from Dubai. Well, it was really hard to even get them down through the rainforest. They were just in total awe of the trees. They had never seen trees before, which is for you and I to even try to conceive that as like, what? Is that possible? But um, so... And then let alone you get you get people to see these bears. For some people, it's a, it's a lifelong goal to, to see a bear. And we get up close and personal. I'm kind of known as a bear whisperer there. One of the only guides in Alaska that doesn't hunt. I'm very spiritual. I'm about the education, the preservation. So my my pitch on the, on the entire experience is a little bit different. Some bad jokes, which uh, I'd be happy to share one with you now if you like. Absolutely. I think every good tour guide worth his weight, uh, has, needs some bad jokes. Let me hear it. I usually, uh, put a clown nose on, on my, uh, face for this, which, which I love to humiliate myself, but you gotta be able to laugh at yourself. But you know, I carry a 500 Magnum pistol grip, short barrel shotgun filled with hollow point slug. So while I'm standing there brandishing this firearm, I put a clown nose on and, and, and the joke is, you know why bears don't eat clowns, right? No. Why? Well, well because they taste funny. <laughs> yeah so it's bad like I say but i do warn people that all of my jokes are bad you know I've, I've been cursed i can never remember the good jokes so 
so I just have like a handful of terrible jokes, but uh, but uh, it's it's pretty funny. So so yeah, I love uh, having the opportunity to educate people. My ride to work is a seaplane. My office is a rainforest. My coworkers are wild bears. It's just as good as it gets. The, the best part is is the kids. You know, you take kids down there, and, and you know, we get a few feet away from some bears, and it's something that you just know they're never going to forget. We have people cry because it's a life changing experience, and for me, every day is different. No two tours are the same, and uh, it's it's magical. I mean, it's the greatest job I've ever had. And then the money's not bad. Um, some some people uh, shell out some pretty nice tips, so it's uh, it's it's just kind of it's good all the way around. I I typically can spend my entire season up there and live just off of the tips. I, I usually ask for one check the day that I leave. and I, I never even collect a check till I'm out of there. Everything I do is on tips. There's a, there's a lot of lot of bonuses to it, I guess you could say, but I just absolutely love it, and I can't stop doing it. And now that I've received the, the senior status uh, as a guide, it's kind of cool because now I'm, I've been doing it longer than any of the other guides that work for the other companies. So I, I get a chance to kind of take them under my wing and teach them some of the do's and don'ts and educate them on because I've now got a lot of experience and knowledge, and so it's just it's just a really 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 cool job. Right now, like I said, my my days are numbered. I can't I can't keep doing this forever, or I'll, or I'll get sucked into this seasonal lifestyle forever. And um, if I do that, I'm going to have to, like I said, probably accept that I'll just never never have a solid, long lasting relationship. So it's going to got to be one or the other. But in the meantime, I, I just love it. Got to got to keep going back. Seasonals understand this. Like I said, a lot of people don't, but seasonals do. They're, they're just something that brings you back. It's the people. It's the friends. It's the obviously the beauty of, of Ketchikan and surrounding areas there in Southeast Alaska. For me, it's the bears, the smiles on the people's faces. It's it's just. Um, I got to go back. Yeah, it's a lot of connections and the connectivity of the culture surrounding seasonals. It is, and we all have, and we all have this connection. We all know it. It's an un, it's an unspoken connection. We don't have to talk about it. We all know. When I get back up there, and, and I, my, well, you know, it never really stops throughout a season. I'm sure you can agree. Like when you first get up there, of course, you start seeing all the people, and, and there's a lot of hugs and handshaking, and oh, yeah, how have you been? And where have you been? And what have you done while you were gone? And that, that happens the entire season that you're there because there's constantly people coming and going. You're meeting new people. You're learning new things. You're reacquainting with people that you know. We're all a family. And and we and like I said, it's something that we don't talk about, but but we all, we all feel this connection. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And then at the end of the summer, there's with the people I know, there's the joke that September, because that's the end of the summer season, September is the month-long goodbye party because it seems like every single day or every night, like somebody is leaving the next morning and you're not going to skip yep. their going away party after you've gone to the last five. So it's just every day in September. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And then, and then ultimately the day comes when it's your goodbye party. Right. Yeah. And I, this year I left, I think October 5th. So it was the night before I left, we had a, a squid, squid cookout, just every different way you can cook squid. Cause we had got a bunch fishing and invited everybody up to the apartment and I was like, Oh yeah, tomorrow I'm leaving. And then the next day came and I was out. Sounds like a uh, squid. That sounds like something Jimmy D would have been involved in. <laughs> I know, I know Jimmy Duncan would have cooked that squid better than anybody there did. That's for sure. 
so for the seasonals that are just getting into it or are thinking about getting into it, since you're the, the grizzled veteran here, what's some advice you have for the young whippersnappers trying to make their way in the seasonal lifestyle? First of all, I'm, I'm definitely pro seasonal, like give it a, give it a try, you know, different strokes for different folks. But for the adventurous, and especially a summer in Alaska, whether it's in Ketchikan or, or any number of awesome towns that are basically doing the same tourist-based thing, you know, my advice to, to anyone is to, to go for it. If, if you have an idea, follow it through. If you have a dream, chase it down. If you want to take a chance on something, do it. If you want to travel, travel. You know, I always wish that I had joined the military because it's you know the older you get you see how fast time goes and four years sounds like a lot but it's really just such a blink of an eye in time so like join the military or go to catch a kid those are your options <laughs> but no in all seriousness i think that uh i think to anyone that's trying it um good for you take a chance have an adventure even if you just do it once like say life is so short like spend a summer on an adventure, go to Hawaii. I mean, there's so many, any, anywhere that there's tourism anywhere in the world is, is a great open door opportunity for, to try the seasonal lifestyle. Catch can's a great one, but like I say, you might not want to go to Alaska, but you could go to Bermuda. I mean, you can find this lifestyle anywhere. If you just, uh, you know, get on Google nowadays, you can find anything you want. My advice would be, yeah, go for it. If you have any curiosity or you want to want to check it out to do it, like just go for it. Live your life. Life is short. You have plenty of time, especially for the younger people. You've got time. Don't worry about getting married early or having kids. Like try to go have an adventure or many adventures because you won't regret it. Go for it. I want to give you props, you and the awesome group of people that you're working with on the seasonal, both the podcast and the magazine. You've got an awesome group of people and, and I think it's killer because you guys have been talking about it. Now you've gotten it off the ground. You're gaining momentum and getting more and more support. And so I'm proud of you guys and um, keep, keep doing what you're doing. That, that, that's what it's all about. It's all about um, pursuing your dreams. And I'm a big, big, big time supporter of that and very proud of you guys. Give you guys props. I also want to give a shout out to Lindsay who um, turned me on to podcasts. If, if it wasn't for her, I probably wouldn't know enough about it to have an interest to have been on your show here today. So um, thanks to her. Thanks to you. I appreciate the opportunity to tell the story today. Yeah, well, thanks, man. I, I think there's a lot of people that still don't know about seasonal life that I think it would really benefit. Like you said, it's not for everybody and it, it's probably not for most people, but there are people that I think we still need to reach that it can be, it could be a, a great thing for. And I want to thank you for coming on and, you know, everybody spread the word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Spread the word. You know, like, I, um, you know, I got to catch Ken after coming to the end of my rope and I'm sure I'm not the only person that ever found themselves there as a result of, of things going terribly wrong in their life. But, um, that's another thing, you know, any, anybody that needs a breath of fresh air, whether you're young, old, the seasonal lifestyle, it's a season. Anybody can do it for any amount of time. And so I think anybody that, uh, whether you need a breath of fresh air or you're looking for an adventure, a seasonal lifestyle, even if it's just for a season is a good idea for anyone. So Drew, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, I love hearing your story. Um, I really enjoy the time we get to spend it 
together in the summer. And I look forward to this summer and however many summers you want to keep doing it before you hang up the saddle. <laughs> I appreciate that. And thank you for having me on, Joey. I'm proud of you, dude. I'm excited for your podcast and your magazine. And you are a perfect example of, of what I'm talking about, about taking a chance on yourself. You've got a great group of people that you're working with too. And I'm, I'm happy for you guys. So thank you for being interested in my story and, and give me a little bit of your time. Yeah. That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. Yeah.